Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Today we're in Mark chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 5. Our heart is to get everybody in the Word of God, so I'm using this opportunity to just share insights and observations in the Word because we want to be really practical, and that's what it's about, isn't it? The Bible may be an ancient book, but it is understandable, especially as we follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit and spend time digging into the Word so that we can mine the gold that is there. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into Mark chapter 5 together. Father, we thank you today for your Word. We thank you that it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and I pray that today you would strengthen us, you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, give us revelation in your Word, give us encouragement, give us hope. We thank you that the Scriptures do breathe hope into our lives and that we could give away to others what you have given to us. So fill us up during this time that we would have such an overflow in our lives that people around us would be blessed and strengthened and they would acknowledge the goodness of our God. We love you and we look forward to what you're going to do in our lives today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Now, just a little bit of a review for Mark chapter 4, which is what we studied. You might remember that we looked at the famous parable of the sower, and we're looking at the four different hearts and heart responses. That's what Jesus talked about. He said that the seed was the word of the kingdom and that it is planted in the soil of hearts. And he looked at four different, he shared with us four different hearts and heart responses, and that was pretty amazing. We, of course, want to be the heart and have the heart response that produces 30, 60, 100 fold. And so we looked at what that meant and what that looked like. What we didn't get to was where Jesus taught a few more parables during that time or after the parable of the sower. And he also is in a boat, the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. A big storm comes and he rebukes the winds and the waves, a very powerful story. And we did not look at that. We are going to pick up here in Mark chapter five as they uh, are in the Sea of Galilee and they end up going to the other side. Here's what it says in verse 1. We're going to read 20 verses today, and there are 43, so we're not going to get to all of those. Obviously, we can only have just a section in our reading. So here's what it says, Mark chapter 5 and verse 1. They, meaning the disciples, came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee into the country of the Gerasenes. Some translations say Gadarenes, but we'll talk about that in a moment. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones." Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed before him. Shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Jesus had said to the demonized man, Come out, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
and he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain, and the demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Of course they did. They've not seen power like this. Jesus' power. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him. Implore can mean strongly, push, exhort, beg. They began to implore him to leave their region. And he was getting into the boat, and the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. He did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he had mercy on your life. And he went away, and he began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Isn't that an amazing testimony. It's a very powerful story of something that Jesus Christ did. Well, let's go ahead and dive in, just look at some simple things, and then we're going to land on the power of our testimony today, because that's what I see in this passage. First, we see that Jesus and his disciples, they they get out of the boat when they're on the Sea of Galilee. This is the eastern shore, and it says the country of the Gadarenes. The text says Gerasenes, which most likely refers to a small town called Gersa. And this is obviously referenced in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 28. And this was located midway on the eastern shore. What's amazing about this is sometimes the Bible will reference an area or a territory or even like a small town, and it doesn't quite line up with what we might see on the map. And part of that is because we don't have everything on the map number one, and number two, their references are not necessarily the references that we have sometimes today. But by and large, most of what we read about is right there on the map and has been documented very well. So this sometimes can be referenced in a couple different ways. But either way, we know that where they were was the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this region was predominantly Gentile, which makes sense because you consider the scene here where there's a herd of pigs. Now, pigs were unclean for Jews. They wouldn't eat pigs, and nobody wanted to be a pig herdsman, of course, as a result of that. And so we believed, and we understand from the text here, that this was primarily a Gentile region. And that's what we see here. In verse 2, we read about a demon-possessed man and... Uh, Actually, the book of Matthew, chapter 8, references two men. So why is it here that there's only one referenced? Well, this is probably because the prominence is based on the one that spoke up. That does happen in the text. That does happen in the Synoptic Gospels. When you read the different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is significantly different, although it's documenting the same Christ. It's documenting the same journey from the womb to the tomb. And resurrected from the tomb, we obviously know that there are details that get filled in. And so we're thankful for that. But we know that there were two men here, and this one was the prominent one that the story is based on, for which Mark wrote about. 
But there are two things immediately that it mentions about this man here uh, in verse 2. It says that this man uh, immediately implored Jesus, and it it also says that he had an unclean spirit. He was demon-possessed. I would like to mention that there is in the text throughout the Gospels different references for this, primarily two. There are those that are possessed, and there are those that are oppressed. Now, you won't really see the word oppression used predominantly. You'll see the word possession used. And most of the time, what we're reading about is somebody that thoroughly and completely has possessed, there is a possession that has taken place. Now, the word possession in English is kind of like a real estate term. It speaks of ownership. So whenever we talk about demon possession, we've got to be very careful because we often parallel situations today to situations in the Bible. There were a lot of people that were oppressed by demon spirits, tormented in various ways, but they were not fully possessed. And those stories, I would say almost all of them, are not mentioned in the Bible, but certainly there are levels of oppression and possession. We don't understand that necessarily from this text, but we do know that because of what we see today. We see that demons were a reality, and they still are a reality. Spiritual entities that seek to inhabit the lives of people in as much as we will either allow or as much as they can obtain. And so what we have here is a very serious possession. Not a good parallel for most of the stuff we encounter, but possession is very Uh, does happen today. I've met people that were demon-possessed. I've met people that were oppressed. I've met people that were tormented. And so I'm just simply saying that when you read a story in Scripture about possession, especially one that's going to name legion because they are many demons, we've got to make sure that we put that in the proper category as we're trying to discern demonic activity currently. I could talk a lot about that, but suffice it to say, I'm just simply making a, a small a point. We look here and it says in verse 3, and he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken into pieces. Now this speaks of supernatural power, demonic supernatural power. That is such a thing. Demons do, uh, when they are able to inhabit a person, They can give them certain aspects of power, and that energy, that demonic energy, can move through that person. And that's actually what we're seeing here. So it frightened people. He lived among the tombs. People tried to, um, they tried to control him. They tried to control the evil in his life. So they exiled him basically to the tombs, but nobody could control him. They couldn't deal with it because um, what we see here is what this man needed was freedom from demonic power. The next thing you see here is in verse 6 or verse 5, constantly night and day he was screaming among the tombs in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. This is self-harm. And I want to mention a point here. In fact, you'll see in the Old Testament, I think it's 1 Kings 18 and 19, there's a time where the prophets of Baal or Baal, they are actually cutting themselves as they're, as they're seeking for their God to respond. These were the prophets of Baal. So they're cutting themselves in the Old Testament. A couple times you'll see where people will cut themselves. It's sort of a form of worship. It's, um, I believe that it's self-harm is demonic. And so today we'll hear of people having self-harm, mutilating themselves, I believe that it's not a person that's possessed, but there's a demonic lie. There's a demonic oppression. 
there's a demonic suggestion. And sometimes there is a demonic possession that's causing or wanting to cause self-harm because demons want to destroy those that are made in the image of God. Demons want us to die. They want to kill us. They want to destroy us. So if they're not able to do that, they want to inspire us to kill and hurt ourselves. And so self-harm is demonically inspired. And we'll see that from scripture. We actually see that here. See a demonized person and they harm themselves. It's really from the pit of hell. And so if anybody you know, or even yourself has thought about self-harm, you have to take authority over those thoughts because that's not God. That's not you. That is a demonically inspired thought. And it does not mean that you're possessed. It just means that there is an entity that wants to inspire you. There is an entity that wants to send a thought, a signal, in order for us to destroy our own selves. And we need to move away from any of those demonic suggestions. We also see here, verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. He didn't bow down to worship him, but he certainly paid homage. What we see from this is the demon could recognize who Jesus was and the authority that Jesus had. Isn't it sad to think of this, that the religious leaders and many of the people of that day could not recognize the authority and the power of Jesus and demons could? It really speaks to uh, something profound in my opinion, but the demons nonetheless recognize the authority of Jesus Christ and they fall to their knees before Jesus. And this is what they say in a loud voice, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. There's obviously some form of manipulation that's trying to happen here, but demons are not going to win and they are not going to have any sway or persuasion over the Son of God whatsoever, which is why we read uh, how Jesus was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And verse 9, Jesus does something very strange, at least to me, not that it's strange uh, entirely. I just don't fully understand this. He says, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. There's a lot of various thoughts about this. Obviously, a legion was a Roman military unit. could be 5,000, could be 6,000 soldiers broken up into different sections. So some people believe that there were five, 6,000 demons. Some people believe that this was, this could have been a demon somehow associated with, um, Roman military. I mean, that's probably far-fetched, but uh, there's some kind of connection. This idea that we are legion, it's not a typical word that would be used to describe we are five, six thousand. To say that we are legion is a, is a specific military term. So it's sort of a strange thing to say. It's not the, the way a, a, anybody would describe five, six thousand people, demons, whatever. And so there's some connection there. We don't fully understand it, but it's just something to acknowledge. We do know that there's more than one demon. This person had multiple demons in them, oppressing them, possessing them. Uh, now there was a, and he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out into the country. Once again, we don't really know. This is the aspect of uh, spiritual warfare um, and demons and demonic spirits. They're saying to Jesus, don't send us out of the country. This could reflect that their understanding of inevitable eternal punishment. This could uh, be a reflection of them wanting to keep their demonic influence in the region for which they've been sowing their evil intent for some time. 
We really do not know. The text does not say, but there are speculations that I've read, maybe a few that I've had myself. It says, there were a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain, and the demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. Coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned into the sea. So here you have unclean spirits going into unclean animals. Jesus gives permission for that. And the first thing that happens is all of the pigs rush down the bank into the sea and they all drown. Why does this happen this way? I have no idea. It just shows you the uncontrollable evil of demonic spirits. They are permitted to go into the swine and the swine drown themselves. This, I mean, is a picture of evil at its finest, if you ask me. When they have full control over something, they kill it. That's what it seems like to me, and that is just the way that I see it. It also shows that God does hold back the level of demonic power of which they can exercise. We see restraint exercised here. Yes, there is a possession, but there's not a full possession because the man still has a level of faculties. How do we know that? Because the demons are restrained. Do you think that the demons would kill this man if they could? Yeah. Some people would say, well, they want to keep the host. That sounds more like Hollywood than it does like demonic spirits. But what we know is the minute they go into the pigs, they drown the pigs. They have, they have no regard for life or human life or any life for that matter. Demons are evil. They have evil and evil gives birth to evil. And that's what they do. So Jesus, for whatever reason, permits them to go into the pigs. The pigs kill, uh, they, they get drowned because the demons send them into the sea. And Here's what happens in verse uh, 15, sorry, verse 14. Their herdsmen ran away and reported in the city. They were frightened. Why? Because they've never seen this kind of power before. And they come back uh, with others. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened because all these people come back to see what was going on. And uh, it says that they, uh, they see the demon-possessed man sitting clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. And I, I just wanted to make um, I wanted to make a point before we just jump into kind of my final thought, verse 17 through 20. I was just thinking about this this morning. Here you have this situation that people cannot control. You have a man who's possessed with demons, and the best that men can do, Think about this. The best that they can do is try to shackle that person. They try to control the evil that's in that person. That person breaks those shackles. That person lives in the tombs, isolated from other people. And this, I wanted to highlight something. You and I in the flesh don't have any power over evil. I want you to meditate on that for a moment. That's what we try to do. When we see evil, we try to control it by using some kind of shackles. If we can silence it, if we can shut it up, if we can tell it to stop, if we can exile it to the mountains, then we don't have to deal with it. And I want to show you the difference of what the king and the kingdom of God does. When Jesus enters into our world, he doesn't avoid evil. He doesn't just try to, humanly speaking, shackle it and exile it to the mountains, Jesus touches lives, touches minds, touches hearts, transforms them because he has the power to do it. And the next thing you know, that person 
which was exhibiting evil, which was doing evil, which was frightening people and people couldn't control it. That same person is clothed and in their right mind. Come on, somebody. That's what Jesus does. And I think it's an important point for us to recognize that the evil of our world is not just going to be shackled by men, it's not just going to be silence, and it's not just going to be exiled to the mountains where we don't deal with it. We are called to bring transformation where there's good that overcomes evil, good that touches those that are touched by evil, and we can see them change. We can see people that were crazy in their right mind, people that were broken, mended. And what does God do? Jesus touches this person so deeply that it frightens people. I mean, wouldn't you like to go back to the ways of Christianity where the power of God is flowing so dramatically where people see what happens as we pray and they're frightened because they've seen nothing like it? See, that's the world tries to bring solutions in a human way, and it doesn't change anything. But Jesus comes into our world, and right now he's coming through the body of Christ, and when he touches a person, when he touches a situation, supernatural power is released, and that thing just turns around because he is the only one that can actually transform the evil of our world and make it as though men and women could now do right and righteously in the world, because that's what he does. Nobody else can do that. You know that we have placed our hope in something else when we are trying to deal with it in the flesh, when we are trying to deal with it from a human perspective, when we are trying to deal with it by avoiding it, silencing it, hoping it goes away. Do not be discouraged when you see evil. We are called to rise up in prayer. We are called to rise up with the gospel. We are called to rise up with supernatural power. The Bible says that good overcomes evil. It's counterintuitive. It's that paradox. It doesn't seem to make sense, but that's what God does, isn't it? That's what he did in you. That's what he did in me. I was no good. I was angry. I was immoral. I was drug addicted. And he touched my life one night. And the next day, I didn't go back to the majority of those things. Now, I'm still walking out my salvation with fear and trembling, but I haven't gone back to those evil ways in 21 years, nor do I intend to. Come on. Thank you, Pastor Ben. Amen. And that's what I'm saying is today is is that this is a picture of what the world tries to do with the worst of them. And it's also a picture of what Jesus can do, obviously, what the world cannot. That's a powerful thing. Well, here's what I want to share with you today, verses 17 through 20. And I just want to uh, close our time by talking to you just four brief points about how we can reach people through our testimony, because that's what I see here at the end of this passage. Here's what it says. They began to implore him to leave their region. This is what they wanted from Jesus. We don't want you around. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. This guy wanted to be with Jesus, right? You always want to be with the one that sets you free. And Jesus did not let him. And he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on your life. And he went away and he began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done. And everybody was amazed. Jesus told the guy, I I don't want you to come with me 
because I want to send you as an evangelist to your people, to your home, to your place, and I want you to tell them what great things that God has done for you. And the cool thing is the guy literally obeyed Jesus and went out and did that very thing. And here's what I want to say. The testimony of the Lord is powerful in our lives, and it does a number of things. When you and I commit ourselves to be witnesses, we are witnesses of what we've seen and heard. When we do what this man did, it does powerful things, reproduces powerful things in our world. Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus said to his disciples, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. For what? So that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. When we encounter the power of the Holy Spirit, then we are witnesses. Witnesses speak of what they have seen and heard. This picture in Mark chapter 5 is a man that encountered the power of God. He was set free by God, and he was told to go and share what good things God has done for him, and he did. And I want to encourage us to do the very same thing. You might say, you might say to me, today, Pastor Ben, I don't know how to talk to people. Just share what God has done. Start there. Do I want us to know how to speak and share the gospel clearly? Of course, we want to be equipped in that. But why don't you start by sharing the good things that God has done for you? The world would be amazed more and more if we would just start speaking about who God is and what God has done. Four things that testimonies do when we share about the good things of the Lord. Number one, Testimonies show the reality of God to people. A lot of debate, a lot of conjecture, a lot of opinions. But when we share our story of what Jesus has done in our lives, people actually have to say that we're liars, that we're lunatics, or we're actually following the Son of God. But that's their decision to make. We have already made our decision that we have decided to follow Jesus because we have encountered his love, we have encountered his power, we have been changed and transformed by his Holy Spirit. He is worthy of our worship, he is worthy of following, therefore our decision, our mind is made up. We want to tell other people about what God has done. And testimonies show the reality of God to people in the middle of a world that wants to argue philosophy and wants to debate and wants to share opinions because experiencing God is part of the Christian life. We have a relationship with Jesus, which means we're going to experience Him. The Bible is His Word, and it's meant to show us the kind of relationship that we're supposed to have. Sometimes intellectualism will take over and we read this book as just something we're supposed to know and not someone we're supposed to know. We read this book and we think about it something we're supposed to memorize rather than inspire our lives in order to be encouraged that the same God that we read about here is the same God that we're walking with today. And so testimonies bridge the gap for people that don't know what we know or have what we have. The second thing is testimonies ignite a hunger in people, both Christian and non-Christian. We need to be stirred. We need to be encouraged. We need to be fired up. All of us do. We want to have fresh hunger deposited in our lives. And too often we succumb to powerless principles and routine religion. And what testimonies do is they stir us up to have a hunger for the living Christ to move among his people like he is, and we're awakened to the reality of Jesus working in our lives through the Holy Spirit. So we want to stir up a hunger, and one of the ways we do that is we share testimonies with each other. And I'll tell you what, 
It takes a good meal to stimulate an appetite sometimes. So when somebody tells you about a restaurant that they've recently eaten at, ate, eaten, eaten, you know what I'm saying? They've rest, they've recently eaten at, and they say how good it is, and they start describing the food, and you start going, man, I want to go to that place. You know, it starts to stir up a hunger because somebody else is talking about how good the meal is. And that's what we need to do. We need to talk about how good the food is, right? We found something that nobody else has found. We, we have something that other people don't have. Can you imagine? Picture the world as a place of starvation. Now, there is a whole lot of starvation in our world, but picture every person starving. Picture every person without food. Maybe just crumbs on the ground is all they get. And you found a place where there is more food than anybody ever needs. It's enough to go around and you have just sat down to the best meal after being starved for years and years, just having crumbs. You just sat down to the best meal and you know that you can have three meals a day and you can invite anybody and everybody that you want or you meet or you know to have the same meal that you just had. Well, listen, we're going to tell everybody about the meal that we just had to stimulate a hunger in them to know what they can expect, where they can go and what they can receive. The third thing testimonies do is they give hope to people. We see that this man's story in Mark chapter 5, that's going to give a lot of hope to people that are demon-possessed, oppressed, tormented, people that are self-harm, all of that. This guy is clothed in his right mind. He's gone from the worst of the worst to, I mean, a person that has a story to share. If it was in our world, he'd write a book. He'd be on all kinds of radio stations and television stations. I mean, this guy would have a story to tell. And so what it does is it gives hope. It's like breath in our lungs. People need hope. We need hope, don't we? Especially in the day in which we're living. Number four, testimonies open a door for the gospel of Jesus to be shared. And that's exactly what we need. We need to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we share testimonies and we talk about the good things that he has done for us, what you find will happen is people will want to know more about this Jesus. And so all of a sudden we have this incredible opportunity to just share about the life, the death, the resurrection, and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is ultimately what saves lives and we want to share with the whole world. And so let me encourage you to be a person that does what this man did. He encountered the Lord and he shared his testimonies at the word of Jesus. Jesus said, go share. And he did just that. I believe people were changed, transformed as a result of just his testimony. We, we don't read about that, but that is what I believe. I believe that's what happens when we spread the good things that God is and has done. Let's do that in our world today. Let's do that with people all around us. Every opportunity that we get, maybe you say, Pastor Ben, I don't get a lot of opportunities. Okay, well, let's pray for him. Let's ask God to open up opportunities. Lead us into divine appointments, divine connections where God opens doors for us. And we, the only thing we are going to do is just walk right into that door. Let's not ignore him. Let's pray for him. Let's walk right into those doors, those moments of opportunity, and share what God is doing in our lives so that we would see it happen in the lives of others. Amen? Well, let's go ahead and pray together as we close for those very things to happen. Father, we do thank you today for, I thank you for everybody that's tuning in. I pray that you would encourage us. Here we read about a man who encountered you. Nobody else could change him, but you changed him. We thank you that that's our story. 
Nobody else, nothing else could change us, but you changed us from the inside out. And God, I pray that you would encourage us to share the testimony of the Lord with people that we meet all over the place. And so I ask for divine appointments. I pray for divine setups where we would meet people that need to encounter you. And obviously that's everybody all over the place, but I pray for specific discernible opportunities for each one of us that as we step into sharing about what you have done, we would see that your glory would spread through not only what we share, but through your mighty working, the power of the Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that you would help us to be bold witnesses. We thank you that you give us power for that very thing. I pray for a fresh baptism with the Holy Spirit. I pray for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Would you encourage us? Would you help us? Would you enable us? We pray today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.